the word of the Lord from the Apostle Paul to the church, the Colossae. So if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. In Christ, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. Slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but work wholeheartedly, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it from the heart, as something done for the Lord and not for people. Knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord, you serve the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done, and there is no favoritism. Masters, deal with your slaves justly and fairly, since you know that you too have a master in heaven. The word of God for the people of God. Well, good morning. My name is Isaiah. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn, and it is truly a joy for us to gather together every week uh, as the people of God and worship Him. I'm going to encourage you to take a copy of the scriptures now to what we just heard read, Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. We are rapidly making our way through the book of Colossians. In fact, my plan is that next week, We will finish the book of Colossians, uh, and then this summer we will begin a series that will pick up every summer until God allows us uh, to make it through the book itself. We're going to start in the book of Psalms, and we're going to take one psalm every Sunday for a period of 10 to 12 weeks each summer and just work our way through the Psalter and see what God has to teach us there. So that'll be in a couple of weeks that we'll dive into that. Last week, Nick took us into chapter 4. We're actually retracing our steps a little bit back into the end of chapter 3. And we are addressing those last three or four verses there where God is giving directives to slaves and masters. Is the Bible pro-slavery? And if not, then why does it address slaves and masters in our text? Natalia A.D. Martins wrote a senior thesis this past spring, spring of 21, so just about a year ago, for the University of South Carolina, Columbia. And this was the title of her thesis, The Unholy Bible, Slavery, Female Objectification, and Harm. In her own words, we wish to expose that biblical-based morality can be dangerous. Listen to what she says concerning Christianity, the Bible, and slavery. Christian institutions, authorities, and followers have at times assumed a supporting role to the enslavement of human beings. But here's the important part. This role was assumed because following biblical precepts on the matter has and can still lead to pro-slavery and racist stances that are, at the same time, coherent 
with Scripture. So is it true that following biblical precepts with integrity will lead to pro-slavery racist stances that are coherent with the teaching of Scripture? It's an important question as we come to our passage, which undoubtedly is a challenging passage. And there are different ways we could approach this passage this morning. We could just kind of completely remove it from its context and say, well, the, the closest thing we can apply it to today is the employer-employee relationship, so let's just dive in there. We could do that. Or we could just have a sermon that's entirely contextual, that just goes into the biblical context and why slaves existed and that relationship and dynamic. But this morning, I'd actually like to combine those two and to preach a message that deals with both the harsh realities of life in the biblical world, including slavery, and a message that also draws out the appropriate conclusions for our lives as 21st century American Christians. So my prayer is that the Spirit would use this text to allow us to work and walk in a way that's worthy of the Lord Jesus. To work and walk in a way that's worthy of the Lord Jesus. So that's our task this morning. And we're going to divide this sermon roughly into two parts. The, te the text then and this text now. So the text then and this text now. So first, the text then. And all we want to do here is really set the biblical context. Why on earth is Paul writing in a way that seems to be or might be interpreted as supporting slavery? Well, we need to recognize that there's an Old Testament foundation to the New Testament, right? So let's remind ourselves of what the Scriptures say as a whole. First, the Bible regards every human being as an image bearer of God. And that begins in Genesis chapter 1, and that thread continues through the rest of the book. Second, the Old Testament acknowledges that the presence, or that there is the presence of brokenness in our world, including the brokenness of slavery. And in that brokenness, it seeks to provide protection for oppressed peoples, including slaves. As one author reminds us, Practices like slavery, polygamy, and divorce were common in antiquity. Biblical instruction that allows for them in certain contexts isn't necessarily biblical approval. We must interpret them in relation to everything else the Scripture says. So third, the Scriptures help and helped, help now and helped in the past, God's people live under God's rule in the midst of a world that is broken. And so if we go to the Old Testament, we see that God allowed slavery to exist even among His own people, the nation of Israel. And there are two main reasons for the slavery that existed among His people. Number one, when a conquered people was subdued, those individuals within that conquered people might become slaves of the nation of Israel. And then the second reason there might be slaves was economic hardship. Someone could actually sell themselves into slavery as a means to escape from 
abject poverty or to avoid the threat of starvation. But even in that, there was often the possibility that a slave could save enough income to buy himself or herself out of slavery. But this slavery cannot be compared to the race-based chattel slavery of the American story. And a Gospel Coalition article is helpful here in drawing out the differences between the two. In the Old Testament, Israelite regulations freed slaves every seven years and that commanded the death penalty for man-stealing, which was the basis for which there were even slaves in our own nation. And generally, the Old Testament sought to limit the institution in protection of the slave. Further, slavery was generally not organized by race, but by circumstances and economics. For example, foreigners and debtors and so on. So we can't allow ourselves to think of the despicable institution of race-based chattel slavery in our nation's story and then draw an equal sign from that to every instance of slave or slavery that we come across in the scriptures. They are not the same. As counterintuitive as it sounds, the alternative to slavery in the Old Testament for the enemies of God, whom God's people had conquered, the alternative to that was destruction, immediately facing the wrath of God for their sin. And we see this throughout the book of Joshua. It was actually, counterintuitively, a grace of God to the people of Canaan specifically for him to allow his people to bring the enemies of God into their homes and their places of work to be treated humanely and with dignity and to be brought into relationship with the God of Israel through their proximity to the people of God. So that's a brief overview of slavery in the Old Testament, but we can't leave it there. There's much more to say. So what does the New Testament have to say? Let's start here. The New Testament writers never condone slavery. They never celebrate slavery. They never justify slavery. And they never promote slavery. Rather, inspired by the Holy Spirit, the New Testament authors are seeking to equip Christians who were oppressed, persecuted, and a hated minority within their own culture, equip them to live in light of the gospel, to live in a way that distinguished them from the surrounding culture, in a way that recognized their lack of power to change society from the top down, but that recognized the inherent power of the Spirit of God within His people to change individuals from the inside out. Second, the slavery referenced in the New Testament was still categorically different than the evils of slavery we're tragically familiar with as Americans. The Bible background commentary says this. I find it really helpful. Unlike the vast majority of slaves in the U.S. and the Caribbean, slaves in Rome were able to work for and achieve freedom. And some slaves even became independently wealthy while they were slaves. This social mobility especially, applied especially to household slaves, 
which was the only kind of slave that Paul addressed in his writings. So economically, socially, and with regard to freedom to determine their future, these slaves were better off than most free persons in the Roman Empire. That's quite a statement. Because most free persons were rural peasants working as tenant farmers. They didn't actually own the land that they worked on. They were working on the vast estates of wealthy landowners. So what we have in this text this morning is Paul's instructions to believing household slaves and the believing masters of household slaves. And what he's doing is he's going to show them that the gospel he's preached throughout the book of Colossians ought to change their interaction. Their interactions from believing slave to master and from believing master to household slave. In Scripture, the penultimate word on slavery in a broken world is the tiny letter of Philemon. Probably not a book you've turned to most recently if you were looking for specific encouragement from God's Word. But that tiny letter of Philemon shows how the gospel so completely changes a slave and a slave owner's reality, drawing them into the new humanity, uniting them to Jesus, such that their immediate relationship can't help but be altered for good, and that the slave-slave owner relationship ultimately is destroyed by the gospel. So my hope is that this first point has been, frankly, a bit missional. That it's been tearing down some obstacles to believing in not just the moral vision of the New Testament, but the Savior, Jesus Christ, who is behind that moral vision, who lifts us up out of our immorality and inhumanity, who forgives our sins, who unites us to Himself under His good and gracious authority for all of eternity. And I also hope it has equipped us as believers to read our scriptures more holistically, to engage our culture practically. But now, since we've looked at the text then, let's look at the text now. Gospel living in the marketplace. So 2,000 years after this letter was written, since none of us own slaves, and none of us are slaves in this sense, what does this text have for us? Well, it actually has quite a lot. We could summarize this passage this way, and this is our big idea. Being united to Jesus reworks you in your place of work. The fact that believers have been united to Jesus Christ by the gospel, when we repented of our sin and trusted Him, God united us to Jesus. That's Colossians 1-4. through 4. Certain realities are to flow from that, and one of those realities is the fact that Jesus reworks us in our places of work. So there are at least five actions. We might call them affectionate actions because they deal with our affections. And Jesus is calling to these affectionate, calling us to these affectionate actions as his followers, and these actions will rework us as we are united to Jesus. And the first one 
isn't necessarily immediately apparent from our, the context. So the first action is this. We are to care deeply. You are to care deeply as you work from Jesus for the marginalized and the oppressed. With everything that we have just said about slavery in the Bible and the fact that the slavery is different than our own national history, even though that slavery in our own history has effects that we can't help but feel in the world around us, there is something that we can't avoid. There are actually more slaves in the world today than at any point in the world's history. There are 40 million slaves in our world. That is the population of the metropolitan area of New York City times two enslaved. And our own city is located halfway between two hotbeds of human trafficking, Nashville and Atlanta. So what is our Christian obligation in the face of this aspect of the world's brokenness? It is to care deeply about others. As we work for and as we work as representatives of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the marginalized, for the oppressed, wherever they show up around us. It is the duty of every Christian to labor, to dignify those we come in contact with. Isn't this what our Lord taught? And isn't this what He modeled? He taught it if we were to go back to the parable of the Good Samaritan. That individual that was considered by the nation of Israel as a half-breed, as someone almost subhuman. But this good Samaritan cared for physically an injured Jewish man who is culturally his antagonist. But Jesus also modeled this type of dignifying of others when he healed the woman who had been bleeding for her entire life an ailment that put her on the outskirts of society, on the edges of society. She was socially unclean, but Jesus met with her and healed her. He dignified her. And time and time again, our Lord treated men and women as they actually are, broken, absolutely. But at the same time, men and women worthy of dignity and respect as image bearers of God, and we carry on this work of Jesus. We carry it on when we treat our neighbors like neighbors. When we love them as if they're actually real people with good days and bad days, with physical and spiritual needs. It may for us look like getting involved in community organizations that work for the dignity of human beings. From shelters that care for homeless men and women to refugee connection centers like Bridge here in the city of Chattanooga, to pro-life centers like Choices here in our city. And for others in this room, it might actually involve a life-changing pivot. To this point in American life, Christians have had an immense amount of power culturally, and that's certainly changing. But the 
enjoyment of that power is something that the New Testament Christian could probably not have imagined as a persecuted, oppressed individual. And it would be inappropriate for us to simply just simply jump from what the text says to how it applies to the average American worker without pointing out a much more obvious application that slavery still exists and the gospel of Jesus Christ puts us into a position of caring about the marginalized, into a position of caring for the oppressed in different ways and in different capacities. So perhaps you've heard of International Justice Mission, IJM. It's a global organization with Christian roots. It works to rescue and restore victims, bring criminals to justice, and strengthen justice systems around the world. And perhaps what God is doing in your heart, even as you're hearing this message, but what He's been doing in your life leading up to this message Maybe you need to investigate getting involved with the marginalized and oppressed in a greater way than you have been to this point. And that may look like simply serving in ministries within our city and organizations, or it may look like investigating ministries like International Justice Mission to see how you can continue to live out the ethic of the gospel, caring for those who are marginalized and oppressed. So, it's our Christian duty to care deeply about others, especially the marginalized, as we work for the Lord Jesus as his representative. But if we look at this passage more in detail now, we see that it actually gives us principles for how we are to go about our normal, everyday work in the world. And here is where we're going to pivot just a little bit in the sermon from some broader themes down into the nuts and bolts of the text itself. Throughout this week, as I was preparing this sermon, I was thinking through some of the jobs that I have held since high school, really. So I mowed lawns early on. I scooped ice cream and sold candy in an ice cream and candy shop. That was by far the tastiest job I've ever held. We were encouraged to sample the product, which was amazing. So if you're ever in New England, and you can find Gifford's ice cream, check out Caramel Caribou. That's one of their flavors. It's outstanding. Side note, if you want to have some fun, uh, just ask Elizabeth and myself when we're together, what is the proper way to say caramel? It's the quickest way to start a discussion in our relationship. Anyway, I also spent some summers cleaning uh, in public schools, cleaning rooms from floor to ceiling as a janitor. That was not nearly as much fun as scooping ice cream. I scheduled shuttle drives for prospective students and VIPs at a university. At a separate university, I managed the guest relations department. I worked in a dock construction company for a while. And then I have been a pastor for 11 or 12 years, something like that. Contrary to uh, to cultural opinion that always seems to want to refocus our attention on either retirement or the next vacation, work is a gift from God. Prior to the fall, God gave Adam jobs to do on his behalf. 
He was to tend the garden. He was to serve there. He was to protect it, to nourish it, to care for it. Work is a good thing, and good work is a God-honoring thing, and good workers implicitly honor the God who created them to work. But for believers, work has taken on an entirely new dimension. According to Paul, at the beginning of this chapter, the new believer, the believer rather, has been raised with Christ and is now seated in heavenly places. Remember, doing flows from being. Our being is the fact that we have been united to Christ. That's who we are in our essence right now, and what we do flows from that. So that means on Monday morning, as you send out invoices, or as you calculate risk, or as you schedule transports, or manage projects, or pay bills, or change diapers, or teach students, or order parts, or provide customer service, or do laundry, or write a sermon, or serve food, you are doing so in the immediate presence of the Lord who saved you, of the Lord who united you to himself. So immediately, that elevates every activity that we put our hands to. There's no longer any human interaction or relationship that is strictly transactional. Party A to party B for some benefit. Rather, there is always a third party, the Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrected and reigning King. And so, number two... As employees, the gospel calls us to submit entirely as to Jesus. Verse 22 says, slaves, obey your masters in everything. So what are the circumstances or conditions in which a slave was to be subject? Everything. But the continuing qualification in this passage is the fact that the Lord Jesus is present in this work relationship. He is there. So submission to an employer or an employee or, or rather an employer or a manager or a boss in whatever context you work is to be out of a higher loyalty to the Lord Jesus. You are to walk in a way that allows you to walk worthy of the Lord. You are to work in a way that allows you to walk worthy of the Lord Jesus. So subjection in areas that would undermine or contradict the gospel is not in view here. But those normal, everyday requests of a manager to a subordinate, from a boss to an employee, whether that directive comes through a policy handbook, through a Slack channel, a text, or an action item from a meeting, the believing worker who's been raised with Christ is, is to submit to that authority whenever the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ is not in danger of being crossed. So we care deeply as we work for Jesus. We submit entirely as to Jesus. Number three, we work wholeheartedly as for Jesus. Look at verse 23. Whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people. What does it mean to do something from the heart? 
It means to do it as a whole, entire, complete person. Listen to how one commentator clarifies this. The Christian at work must be a whole person, totally given to the task in hand, not merely doing the minimum required to avoid rebuke with a show of effort when one is being observed. That attitude shows no reverence for the Lord who's called all his people to a full, single-hearted human living. Even if they are treated like animals or worse, slaves were still to regard themselves as fully human beings. And thankfully, in our country, we have laws that have been designed to protect the worker from abuses within the workplace. But the principle of working as a whole, entire, complete person from the heart still stands. Psalm 86.11 is helpful here. The psalmist prays, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Work wholeheartedly as if you are working for Jesus. Because Jesus is actively reuniting our hearts from the broken shards of idol worship that they used to be, And he's recreating us to be truly human. We are in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. He is all and he is in all, as Paul has said earlier in Colossians 3. So we refuse to separate our work from our worship. We refuse as believers to make distinctions between what is holy and what is secular. Because Jesus is recreating within us a heart that fears Him with reverential awe. Such that we begin to work to please Him no matter who else is around. Rather than working to simply please our boss when he or she is around. So we care deeply as from Jesus. We submit entirely as to Jesus. We work wholeheartedly as for Jesus. Fourth, we work hopefully. We work hopefully as in Jesus. Look at verses 24 and 25. Paul says, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done and there is no favoritism. So rather than working merely for more money or whatever money can provide us, rather than working simply for a paycheck or a pay raise or a retirement account or financial independence, believing workers set their hope on something much higher than that, an eternal inheritance from Jesus. The idea of an inheritance is a deeply Jewish idea. And it began with the promise to the patriarchs of land that would one day be theirs and their descendants. You can't read far in the Old Testament without reference to one's portion or one's inheritance or lines that have fallen well for individuals. 
In Jesus, all of those promises, promises for, an appor- for a portion, for an inheritance, for lines that have fallen well, all of those promises can't be taken away in Jesus Christ. They are forever secured. They are rich. They are lush and they are fruitful in Jesus. It's all fulfilled in Him. So because of that, you and I this week get to work in hope no matter how hopeless our work seems to be. We know that whatever limited effect our work will have now, in eternity our work will be rewarded. So we work on earth knowing that work will never be done until we reach our eternal rest. We work in hope knowing that we're in Jesus, secure in Him, our inheritance is secure. And knowing that however you are wronged in the context of your work, your job, whether that's having been overlooked for a promotion that should have been yours, or if you've been marginalized for your faith in Jesus, or if you've been denied the pay that others in your role are receiving, all those wrongs will one day be righted because we serve the Lord Christ and He will pay back the wrongdoer for what He's done. And to those frustrated in their work, which might be 90% of us, to those frustrated in their work, this passage speaks hope to you. Jesus sees you in your work. He has seated you with Him in the heavenly places even while you are working. And while your work may not provide the joy and the satisfaction that you hoped it would, let this passage remind you that your hope of joy and satisfaction has never, ever existed in your current job. It exists in the Lord Jesus Christ who will himself fulfill all of your longings and satisfy all of your desires for all of eternity. 1 Peter 1.3 says this, God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because of his great mercy, has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So we work in hope. If you're interested in learning more about what God's Word says concerning your faith and your work, then I'd encourage you to check out this free online course from the Gospel Coalition. It's based on material that Tim Keller put together and others teach through it. It's called An Introduction to Faith and Work, Investigating the Secular-Sacred Divide, the Connection Between God's Story and Ours, and Matters of Workplace Wisdom. There's a QR code there on the screen. You can click that. It will take you immediately to the course. We'll also send a link out if you're interested in the weekly email. So we care deeply about others. We submit entirely as to Jesus. 
we work hopefully as in Jesus. And number five, we manage others justly as under Jesus. Paul addresses those who are responsible for the livelihood and the well-being of others economically. Look at verse, chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, deal with your slaves justly and fairly, since you know that you too have a master in heaven. So for those in this room who oversee others in their work, you have the opportunity to model for them what it is like to have a gracious, merciful, benevolent master like the one you have in heaven, who is patient with you, faithful to you, and helps you by his Spirit. One who treats those who follow him with justice and fairness. And of course, in your role, you have to hold people to company standards and expectations from your bosses, but you can do so justly, not showing favoritism between those employees you enjoy and those you dislike, because you will give an account to your master for how you represent him to those around you as one who bears his name. There is much gospel hope in these verses and in this verse for both the employer and the employee. There's hope for the employee who knows that his boss has a master to which he will give account. Hope in the fact that our heavenly master is, his, is himself just and fair and so requires justice and fairness from all. Hope that those who've experienced the inequity and injustice and unfairness in the context of work will have those grievances redressed by Jesus. But there's also gospel hope for employers, for managers, for supervisors, bosses who have failed to act in this sort of justice and fairness to this point. If you are in this category, Jesus has enabled you by his Spirit to joyfully repent, to correct your course so that you are walking worthy of him and then begin serving him and others, even in your supervisory role, in a way that honors Jesus as your master. So will you answer this call of Jesus? The message of these verses is this, being united to Jesus reworks you in your place of work. So we care deeply as we work from Jesus. We submit entirely as to Jesus. We work wholeheartedly as for Jesus. We work hopefully as in Jesus, and we manage others justly as under Jesus. So let me ask you a question. How might your enjoyment of your work and your anticipation for your work change if you approached your work more and more with these postures? If work became for us an opportunity to showcase the beauty and the glory and the character 
of Jesus. If work became a platform to showcase the beauty of this kind of Savior, who himself cares deeply for the marginalized and the oppressed, who himself submitted to his Father, who labored with a unified heart for his Father, who worked in hope in anticipation of the future, and who graciously leads and guides us as his Master, as our Master. If work became a platform to showcase the beauty of this sort of king, how might our perspective on work change? The gospel is for every person and for all of life. We believe that wholeheartedly here at Sojourn. And that means that its power and its effectiveness reaches even to the time clock, the Zoom meeting, the evaluations, the accounting, the drudgery and joys of a nine-to-five or the second or third shift, remote work, the freelancer, or the entrepreneur. So may Jesus have his way within us as he reworks us for his glory in our work. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we come before you as your children with this request on our hearts. May each of us in our work this week labor with a sense of purpose, of peace, of calm. Whether that work is in the home or outside of the home. God, give us grace to establish a tone and a culture of kindness and grace in our work that permeates every room that we walk into, every meeting of which we are a part, the aroma of Jesus Christ. Lord, be at work, we pray, in our work. Be at your labors in the place of our labor. We ask that you would make us gospel-shaped workers for you this week to the praise of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.